Welcome to the Restart Radio Show, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance FM 104.4. This is a different show because unlike most, we do not focus on the new shiny, shiny things to buy. We focus on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart Project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronics repair events here in London, called Restart Parties, are just the beginning. My name is Janet Gunter from the Restart Project, and I'm joined by Ugo Volaudi, my partner in crime. Hello. <laughs> um, in this episode, we're going to do something different and potentially a little bit scary for us. <laughs> we're going to talk about a big, complicated topic that really needs some talking about. And we have some insight into this topic as activists, and but we also have some serious questions. So our work has really been affected by Europe from day one. Um, anyone that's involved in consumer issues, in products, in the environment, probably feels the same way. So we're quite concerned about the potential effects of a British exit from the EU or a Brexit um, as they say. <laughs> which kind of sounds like some weird thing, like a breakfast cereal or something. Um, if, you know, if you question any of what we say today, that's great. We would, that's excellent. Tweet at us, comment on our stuff. Please read up about this and do your own research because it's really important that we all learn about this. And um, most of all, Ugo and I think everyone should vote on it. So... Um, we're not experts, and we thought we'd look for some help to frame things today. Um, and we looked around, and we saw some very uh, earnest, informed letters by experts. We saw a couple of policy papers, which, you know, we don't exactly want to read on the radio. So um, we thought we'd start with some great material from some other non-experts. <laughs> and we asked our favorite green podcast called Sustainababble. If we could borrow from their Europe episode. Um, and in this episode, they, um, they interview Friends of the Earth campaigner Samuel Lowe. Um, and this is quite an amusing clip um, that is about uh, more classic environmental issues, but it's going to bring us to our own issues dear to our own heart. So here we go. So, so, so to be clear, when rules are made at the European level, we are very much a part of that we are one of the 28 member states and we help make those rules so for example the you were talking about nature and uh landlocked nature the rules that govern that the birds and habitats directives collectively known as the nature directives were actually constructed by someone from the uk who uh you may have you may have heard of his son uh one uh, boris johnson well his dad stanley johnson was at the european commission actually uh start put in motion this this batch of legislation that that is really rather wonderful it has a list of protected species that everyone across the eu has to take into account and then uh different pockets across the eu of um nature of reserves of habitats and the way they've done it is that they've looked at the entire eu and said what might be common say in the uk say peat bogs but is uncommon across the rest of the eu and how much of that do we need to preserve so as to not have any further habitat loss and the aim is hopefully in the future to make them even better so that we get habitat restoration. Why don't you trust then British people to look after their own peat bogs? Why do we need, why does it follow? So this is the argument that I hear, right? Why does it follow? Oh, God, these bloody foreigners. I can do better than some foreigner telling me to look after my peat bogs. Surely if we leave Europe, we can just look after our own damn peat bogs. 
Okay. <laughs> so obviously, um, we deal with uh, stuff with batteries and stuff that plugs in, and we're not spending our lives in peat bogs. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ugo, we heard some kind of similar rhetoric, though, the other day, and we, on, we read about it in The Guardian. Why don't you tell us about the, oh, keep your hands off our toasters? Yeah, our toasters are so quintessential to our identity and we know best how to regulate them, said from a non-British person. However, I do like my toast, toasted well. Um, so, yeah, we, we've heard that actually the fear around bad press um, is making legislation or proposed legislation around more energy efficient devices stall at the EU level. Um, so there's been work uh, behind the scenes um, creating um, opportunities to further reduce the CO2 emissions that devices such as toasters emit because of limited efficiency in their operation. Um, but the plans, uh, once the referendum on Brexit uh, was announced, uh, plans for this new legislation has been put back in a drawer uh, because there's fear that more British people would consider this an intrusion on internal matters. Well, we see that actually this is very much the other way around in our view and in our perspective because we do need uh, stronger alliances that actually bring together multiple countries as a one single larger market in order to gain traction for legislation that would improve the products we have and make it less polluting and more efficient. Okay, so while we have our producer Paul uh, laughing about peat bogs and toasters, um, we're going to move to something that everyone can relate to. So probably everyone in their pocket has a mobile. And well, <laughs> if you have an iPhone, you can't relate to this just yet. But <laughs> if you have any other kind of uh, mobile not made by Apple, um, you have you charge it through what's called a micro USB charger, a universal uh, form of charging. Now, just a couple of years back, this was not the case. Um, and so we wanted to talk a little bit about the the universal mobile charger being actually a real emblem for uh, the power of the EU to improve things for consumers. I wonder when people will look back, would anyone believe that in 2009 there were over 30 types of mobile phone chargers to charge all the phones that were in the market? That, that seems insane compared to what we have now and uh, didn't get started just in the UK, this change, but it's certainly gone got traction yeah. at the EU level. Now, the, the way the EU tells the story is that um, that they basically convened manufacturers, um, sat them all down at the table, and were like, this situation is preposterous. Um, we imagine that many, there may have been already some like alignment of manufacturers, of designers, some, some interests already aligning. But in June 2009, an MOU was signed in which mobile manufacturers agreed to harmonize chargers for new models of, uh, of smartphones. Uh, and this was supposed to come, come onto the market as of 2011, although I think it may have even really started in practice earlier. So the interesting part about the Common Charger MOU is that it wasn't actually a regulation per se. So all these guys, you know, these 
guys who were like, oh, don't come in and regulate and too much red tape and what. Actually, this was not a case of a regulation. This was the case of like, um, in a sense, it was like a carrot and a stick situation. So the carrot was from the EU. Why don't we all sit down together and figure something sensible out that people will actually like? And the stick was kind of like, don't make us go and... Regulate. Regulate. Yeah. Um, so this is a really interesting example of the convening power, the power of a common market, right, Ugo? Yeah, and actually it, we see it over and over again. I recently attended a, a conference in Brussels talking about innovation and the challenges of bringing innovation to the whole of Europe vis-a-vis uh, -vis innovation to a country like the United States, which has comparable size and just one real in single market and uh, innovative companies from Northern Europe um, coming up with a very high tech version of a vehicle for people with disabilities were saying that for them not having really, really a one single market across Europe was actually making it hard to implement uh, their product in Europe as opposed to the United States. So in a sense, we do need a bit more than what we have. Certainly, we don't need to go back in order to make decisions that will bring positive change also in the products that we consume. Yeah. Um, and one of the interesting things about the Common Charger um, story in particular was that um, well, it did make all of our experience much easier. So like when you're at a friend's house or, you know, when you're traveling, you can you can actually charge your mobile. <laughs> Maybe iPhone users don't have the same experience because their chargers are changing every year or whatever. They need a little extra adapter all the time and they don't know yeah. why exactly. So but that's a real convenience. And that's something that the, that the average, uh, well, let's just say citizen, OK, who has a mobile is a consumer. The average consumer um, can benefit from. However, um, it's, it was shown and some of the research of the EU itself showed that um, it hasn't actually helped reduce waste. In other words, many manufacturers are still um, putting in the universal charger with the phones they sell. So while it was intended to reduce waste, it hasn't necessarily had that impact. So reducing waste is actually potentially a slightly harder um, scenario. And we wanted to talk about um, some activity of the uh, European Commission that may actually really go into real depth about reducing waste. Um, and as a part of the much heralded circular economy package that finally uh, was brought to the public in, I believe, December, December. last year, yeah. um, we'd been waiting on that for ages. Um, there was some real, finally some detail about how the what's called the eco-design directive will be expanded um, under the circular economy package in future. As it is the EC or the EU, the there, the detail is not as specific as we might like, although it does point to some things that they may be doing. Um, so the commission has has uh, has said that it will support repairability, durability, and recyclability in product requirements um, in the next working plans for the Eco-Design Directive, taking into account specific requirements of different products, and of course, that's really interesting to us because like we, we know from fixing that every single product class and category is quite different and needs to be quite carefully, um, quite carefully designed for those issues. Do you want to give some examples, Ugo, of how an eco design directive might help us? Yeah, for example, uh, if manufacturers were required or strongly advised to provide more access to 
repair manuals or extending the availability of spare parts or making products that are simply easier to disassemble when a repair is needed. Yeah, I think that's that's the one that that point was talking of too. Yeah. They've also uh, they've also alluded to the fact that they will be looking at spare parts and repair information. They say they will quote, consider proportionate requirements on the availability of repair information and spare parts. Now, whenever uh, whenever uh, a political organization says it will consider something, I, I'm a little mm. bit nervous. But there, it gives us some it gives us as citizens of the EU some points in which we can we can follow up, we can pressure them, we can show that there is a massive demand from our side for that. And certainly there is no point or scope for anyone trying to achieve the same as a single country because it wouldn't really uh, provide any sufficient pressure to anyone who wants to sell a product. If you're just having to follow specific regulations for one country, you might as well concentrate on those other countries where you don't have the same requirements. So. The pressure can only come from what we've always said. It's a bottom-up approach as civil society needs to be activated, but the framework to aspire to is indeed that of a one single larger market where a change in eco-design and a change in regulation can indeed make a difference and find uh, an audience from manufacturers. And it's fairly urgent. And we've heard from uh, friends in policy sections and rather large uh, environmental NGOs that they were that basically the window, in a sense, for European common market influence on a global scale is shrinking. In other words, we are our population is shrinking. <laughs> we're becoming, and other co- economies are growing. So. As a common market, our influence, um, well, some people estimate it at different, win- uh, different horizons, but that our influence could only be maybe 15 years down into the future. But on the one hand, this could be seen as an opportunity for the UK to disentiate itself from something that will not have an extended life. But actually, to the contrary, it's a sign that very small entities don't necessarily really have a future. I mean, who are you trying to compete with? I mean, we're not seen the emergence of small states that can really have a f- strong impact in, through their choices. Okay, you're listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM, and Ugo and I are a little bit out of our depth today, talking about Europe and potential impacts of a Brexit. We haven't quite gotten to that yet. We're, slow, yep. we're just getting talking about Europe's influence at the moment. Um, and we mentioned earlier electronic waste. So the uh, the notion that the universal mobile charger could have reduced electronic waste, although it might, might not necessarily have done that. Um, another key piece of legislation um, that Europe has passed and has had a massive impact across all the member states is what's called the WE Directive. <laughs> and um, it's I wish we could just call it the e-waste directive. But WE stands for Waste, Electricals, and Electronic Equipment. Correct. Um, and Ugo, tell us why the WE Directive is so important and so unique. Well, the WE Directive is crucial exactly because it provides a framework that allows different countries to operate uh, in a way that can be monitored and compared and towards a common goal. Now, although every country has the freedom to implement it in different ways, and we know there are issues with the way, for example, it is implemented in the UK, but it provides 
some metrics and targets that can help different countries uh, see how well they're performing and what is the bigger picture, particularly in regards to how things are recycled and where they're taken at the end of their useful lifespan. Yeah, and the um, the WE directive introduced what's called um, extended producer responsibility, uh, which is which is a really important concept in uh, well in uh, materials efficiency and recycling. Basically, it means that those who uh, produce and and retail the equipment that we um, that we all buy uh, have to take responsibility for it at the end of life. And um, in effect, what it means uh, here in the UK, at least, is that 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 is that cost is passed on to consumers. Now, we're, very few people are aware of that when they're buying something, um, let's say, at a big box store or off of Amazon or wherever, that they're actually paying for its uh, proper disposal, its recycling at that point. Um, we've pointed out many times that it would be really interesting to that people learn about the way the system works, <laughs> although the system is extremely opaque and difficult to understand. As, as, and we've talked about how difficult it is to actually, for some people in some areas, actually recycle stuff properly. Yeah, we, we, we've said in more than one occasion that it would be great if people, when they buy their product, if on the receipt they could see where exactly that product will end at the end of its lifespan and what is the value in recyclable recyclability terms of any of the substances that are included in that product. But as you said, it's much more opaque than that, particularly because um, it's very hard for a normal person, a normal citizen to know what actually happens to the product they want to recycle when they recycle it. Yeah, so it passes through many different many. hands, um, and before it before it gets shredded into and becomes a raw material, and is then um, sold on to uh, to people searching for for raw materials. Um, it's a very complex journey that each product would take, and as with much recycling, not just uh, electronic waste, I think. There needs to be so much more that's done in this area to just to bring it alive for people because it is actually quite fascinating if you think about Indeed. what happens. Yeah, it is. And actually, most information people get access to is on what they shouldn't do. And that creates, okay, like a lot of people just decide to keep things in their drawers at home because all they hear is don't bring it here, don't take it there, this is dangerous, da da da. And instead, actually, we would love to see much more transparency in regards to where you should take things and what is the best thing you can do for each specific category of product. And interestingly, I was looking at some of the statistics about uh, e-waste recycling rates across the member states, and there's a huge variation, right? So um, and also, uh, we'll get to this later, but uh, Norway, which is part of the common market and not part of the EU proper, has actually quite a high recycling rate itself. Um, and where you're from, Ugo, Italy has an abysmal e-waste recycling rate, actually. Sorry. We'll do better. <laughs> no, but but there's a lot to be learned. So interesting. So another advantage of potentially being part of the um, part of the EU is, is learning from what's working in other places. And um, oftentimes we... I don't hear enough of that kind of um, what can we learn from other countries um, or also potentially even, um, you know, obviously within within the UK. But there are there are other things that can be learned from other countries. So um, 
generally speaking, um, the the EU is not doing as well as it should be on e-waste recycling. And this is, we have a good system in place, but um, but making it actually work and and making it work without criminalizing people and making it an issue of compliance, but making it um, work better for the average citizen. I think that's really the challenge of member states. But potentially, the EU could help. Um, and I'm sure there are projects. I, I, we don't know enough about all the various thousands of uh, EU projects and offices and things, but um, there's a real scope for learning in that area as well. Absolutely. The more we are and sharing the different approaches, certainly there's opportunities to improve as opposed to get behind. Okay, so I did mention earlier that, okay, so we've talked about some of the things that the eat that uh, Europe does and um, has done for us in our area. Um, now the question of the Brexit. Okay, so uh, most proponents of a Brexit seem to suggest that we should be part of a common market. So they're kind of saying we should be like Norway, Norway. right? Um, now the interesting thing about uh, well, the in- I mean Norway is Norway. Also, let's just like <laughs> let's. Put, I mean Norway is progressive in many things and has been for quite a while. Um, but also the question of of how, how that would work, um, you know. So essentially, Norway does have to, as a part of the common market, has to sign up to basically a lot of the standards we were just discussing. So anything related to the to products, to recycling, all of these things Norway has had to implement in its own national law. And it's actually quite informative to go through um, if you're if you're out there and you're curious about, OK, so so what would it look like to be a Norway do some web research and you can find Nor- Norwegian implementations of European directives. And that's quite common, although that's not the case for everything. Um, so but- to explain, uh, mm-hmm. Norway, as well as uh, Liechtenstein and Iceland, is part of the so-called European Economic Area, which connects the 28 uh, EU member states with additional countries that implement the single market as it is. But there are differences in the level of involvement that countries like Norway and uh, Liechtenstein and uh, Iceland have in shaping the future regulations, right? Well, and the other question is really, I mean, so on June 23rd, the question is, do we stay or do we go? The question is not, do we go and then immediately become part of this common market? So there are some real um, risks here. What what are the guarantees that we will become part of this uh, this common market. And this is the point when I wanted to play something from Sustainable again, because they they get, um, Samuel Lowe gets right back into this question. Um, and I think he frames it in a very, I mean, considering he's a campaigner, um, he frames it in a very sensible way. Let me just cue this, here we go. Our place in the world. Just, but- as, just as week, the, uh, in the face of all of these air pollution scandals, the EU voted to let car manufacturers do more polluting cars. So, so yeah, ex- exactly. And go team. <laughs> well, go go team led by the UK on yeah, that. Right. Yeah. So so what I would say is when you do look at it and you look at the bad things as well, you also have to see what was the role of the UK government in this. And they don't really advertise a lot of the things they get up to in the EU. But I would say that when it comes to the environment, as a rule of thumb, if something bad's happened, the UK were probably behind it. I think you can persuade environmentalists to care about Europe by explaining 
all these benefits that they've had for quite a long time now and have forgot where they came from, explaining that they came from there. And not necessarily that were we to leave, all these things would instantly go, but just that there's a lot of risk involved with leaving and there's a lot of uncertainty. So on, on the birds and habitats and nature directives, if we were to leave... Um, we're not going to go back into the birds and habitats, but um, that basically, okay, while the, while the UK hasn't always been the best influence within the EU... There are some real questions about what will happen if we, if we, um, if we do leave. And um, he actually, in relation to the birds and habitat, uh, for those of you who are interested, um, the, it, it, as a part of the common market, that doesn't really make any difference. In other words, there are some environmental uh, regulations which will dis- which will melt away with yeah. an, with an exit. Um, on our issues and the issues we've just been talking about on uh, consumer issues, on re- on recycling, and even some of the other major environmental directives, the UK will still be forced to implement them in some way. I guess the question for us is, if we're going to be part of this common market, um, and there are all these rules that we'll still have to implement, so all of the populist, you know, red tape, blah, 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 we'll still have to implement a lot of these rules, um, but we'll have much less influence over them. And well, as the sustainable guys point out, sometimes our influence is awful. <laughs> but um, from our perspective as the Restart Project, we think that citizens in the UK actually have a lot to offer some of these debates around um, we're on recycling, repairability, um, f- you know, fairness, basically, for consumers. Yeah. And actually, what's missing from the debate, at least until now, is what is the vision in case of a Brexit? I mean, it's not even clear whether the vision is to go for this one single market, the economic uh, area, uh, as Norway did, or to be completely separate. I I haven't actually heard anyone proposing a specific way forward in this respect. And for us, like a total break would be absolutely devastating in the work that we do. Um, we <laughs> we've just explained we've spent our we've done our best to explain um, how the how Europe uh, can can bring about change without even necessarily regulating. So looking at the universal charger, um, we've talked about the eco design directive and some of the potential it has for f- the future. And we've also talked about um, uh, recycling, electronic waste, and how um, Europe has been crucial in setting up. A, um, a pretty uh, a system that has a lot well that has a lot of potential <laughs> that's that we can still realize and you know one last word for me would be also certainly there's a bit of sadness in the fact that the discussion has now turned into this very uh, detail-oriented thing about what is the one policy that would make uh, the UK reconsider this um, quest for an exit and where the actual larger value of a one single continent coming together in the interest of the founders, which was to reduce war and create a common future for a population that had been in wars forever. I just think that just the fact that we are going... the handkerchief. (laughs) Well, but the fact that all of this is gone and has been kind of sucked away in this conversation on very legalistic little terms, um, I just think in itself is quite a sad moment or period for Europe. Well, and I think on green issues particularly, I mean, that is where we can make an argument that we need to forge a common future. Um, Now, we can understand all of the... Like, Ugo and I have been to Brussels. We've been to a number of, shall we say, not so fascinating uh, panels, talks, events. 
we've feel, you know felt the blood drain from our face many times in meetings in Brussels when it gets very technical and we just feel very alienated. So we understand the alienation. All we really want is for people to think about it, yeah. to do some research on some of these areas, and really consider um, whether it's the right thing. And definitely get out and vote on June 23rd. Um, okay, so tomorrow we're going to include a list of links to all the organizations and campaigns and things that we've that we've mentioned today on our website, therestartproject.org. Thanks to Sustainable for letting us play their clips. You can find them at sustainable.fish. And um, if you're if um, if you're listening and you have something that either plugs in or has a battery and it's broken or not doing very well, we can help you with it. We have a restart party coming up on Saturday at the Arcola Theater in Dalston, and we'd love to see you there. As usual, you can find us on Twitter at the Restart Project or on Facebook, and um, we'll see you next week when we hopefully talk about something less intimidating. Thank you. Bye bye.